Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about the law. Yay! Also one of the largest, widest spanning topics in all of human discourse, from jurisprudence to science and, of course, to theology. Now, you may be expecting a very straightforward discussion of the two or possibly three uses of the law from a Lutheran perspective. And uh, you probably know by now not to expect um, a takedown of the law in favor of the gospel, as is typical of a certain kind of Lutheran theologian that we disdain. Um, But in fact, we're going to try to get at um, the promise and possibility as well as the inherent problems of the law from an entirely different angle. Are you ready, Dad? I am. What's this different angle? I wanted to start with just kind of an elementary observation about how we do use the word law in all of these different areas of human thought and experience. And just to boil it down to the simple observation that a law basically means something like a consistent and recognizable pattern. And that's why you can use the word law to describe things as disparate as the laws of physics and the law of Moses. Because in each of those realms, when we use the word law, what we're describing is consistent patterns that work the same way over and over again. And physics, presumably, they work automatically of themselves. Like you can't you can't actually mess with the law of physics and succeed. Gravity always wins. Um, And with the law of Moses or any law of jurisprudence, of course, the law can be broken in a way that physics law can't. And yet the whole idea behind these laws, these uh, in in the jurisprudence realm or religious realm, is that they are meant to set up and enact consistent patterns that are recognizable and extended over domains of human experience and are the same from person to person, from situation to situation. and so if you lose that consistency or that, that patternedness, you'll end up with noise or randomness or unpredictability, or in the case of jurisprudence, you'll have injustice, um, but you will not have the law. So I think just starting with that idea of law as pattern, recognizable, repeated pattern, is helpful in getting towards both the, uh, the good and the bad that we're going to be exploring in this episode. Very good, Sarah. You know... It occurs to me that what we're talking about is the difficulty of interpreting experience, whether it's uh, phenomena um, uh, that we perceive by the senses or more humanly, socially, uh, the behavior of our fellows. Uh, And in either case, these phenomena or human behavior can be ambiguous because we see things not only from the outside, we don't see into the inside, but also uh, because um, um, we don't know the causal laws uh, or the uh, motivations of human behavior that are actually operative in any given event. So there's an ambiguity about interpreting experience. And if we're going to talk about law in your way as a consistent and recognizable pattern, it seems to me that we are seeking a useful abstraction from experience uh, in terms of order or logic or norm, which can be used to make sense of our experience. But needless to say, 
to, in search of that pattern, we are looking for something that we can abstract from experience in order to apply it to new and repeated and even unfamiliar experience. How does that sound? That is exactly right. And I, I think that's uh, that leads us immediately to to one of the inherent but necessary problems with the law. Um, you know, just as you were saying that, I was thinking when I talked to my, my son, Zeke, about um, about how people behave so in order to, like you said, give him useful heuristics for interpreting what he sees. And, you know, like... Um, if this friend of yours is acting like this, it looks like it means this, but it probably means this, you know, and everything is coached in this very conditional way. But from my vantage point of, of middle age and parenthood, I recognize patterns in human nature. And so I can advise him to learn how to interpret correctly what he's seeing. But it's not that I know for sure, and I'm not seeing into the other kid's heart, uh, much less his or mine for that matter. But that's that's it. It's trying to get useful information for coping in the world. But as you said, there is always always the ambiguity and there's always the gap. So that's the the second real point to recognize about a law or a pattern is it is not equal to reality. It can't be unless we were truly, truly determined automata. And I know there are still some philosophers and scientists who like to play with that idea, but we're just going to set that one aside for now. Um, um, because that we are not pure automata, then there is always a gap between this pattern we abstract for useful information and to guide our behavior. Behavior. Like, if I fall off the ladder, I will probably break my leg. You might not, but you probably will. That's good enough. Um, but because there's the, the gap, that means that there's always... Um some also, there's missing information. There's an imperfection there. So, but you need the gap to be there for the thing to be useful at all. So if you think about a map, a map that was equivalent to the territory it covered would not be a map and it would not be useful. <laughs> the whole point of a map is it needs to abstract and shrink and condense and signify the reality. If it didn't leave out all the stuff it leaves out, it would cease to be a useful tool. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think you see the same thing in like um, the way Newtonian physics discovered that there were all these consistent laws of, you know, as I said, gravity and, and boiling temperatures and, and things like that. You, you could find out all these things about the way the world worked. And then in the 20th century, there's a discovery, wow, Newton's laws do not work at the speed of light or at subatomic level. So now what? And so you had to develop a new kind of abstracting law for those things. And yet, you know, the, the unifying equation that explains everything um, is still beyond our grasp. There still seems to be things that cannot be fully accounted for by the laws of, of physics. And the same thing you you see it in, uh, I alluded to psychology, but also sociology, there's an economics, there's all sorts of wizards of prediction who claim to have cracked the laws of both individual and mass human behavior. And yet, there's always a gap. And that's why we are continually astonished at developments in in the world, because there is some, some, uh, yeah, gap, space, um, unpredictability, randomness in the system that no amount of useful, recognizable patterning can totally overcome and, and prevent us from being caught off guard by these things. Yes, I, I think that's very good. In, in the realm of natural science, of course, it's not so much that Newton's uh, laws were uh, falsified or something like that, but rather that uh, in the course of the 20th century, they were transcended by quantum mechanics. 
And so the truth of Newton's laws was was not denied, but it was put into another framework, a larger, perhaps we could say a larger framework. And I wonder if we could also think that way about progress in jurisprudence or progress in uh, in uh, um, the moral law or the understanding of, or political law. Uh, for example, you know, 200, 300 years ago, chattel slavery was the law of the land. Uh, and uh, in the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, we've repudiated that in, and we've transcended it. Now, I, I want to be a, make a subtle point here, and I hope I'm not misunderstood. Um, the chattel slavery has been uh, outlawed because of the belief that the worker is worthy of his or her hire. And so slavery was a form of systematic theft, systematic robbery. Yet at the same time, the law of property, which makes some people owners and others propertyless workers, uh, that has not yet been transcended. And where that kind of economic law, the law of capital, I suppose you could say, where we've tried to overcome it as a human species in a socialist or communist experiments, it's pr proved pretty disastrous thus far. So there is some way in which you can talk about progress in political law, uh, but uh, again, in a way that transcends past understandings. Uh, but at the same time, there's a great deal more continuity, I think, uh, than we sometimes want to admit. Many of the young people today are talking about wage slavery and how they simply want to opt out of the entire system of wage slavery, which of course was exactly the advancement that was made with the abolition of chattel slavery. I, I don't see the connection, but I don't want to get distracted by that. Um, if people don't want to earn wages, I don't know how they'll get what they want. But Again, let's set that aside. <laughs> right. um, but I, but I think your point about jurisprudence is very good, which is that um, you, as long as you've had laws, you've also always had judges to interpret the law because human experience is simply too vast to be contained in a legal code, even if it's as um, insanely long and detailed as the legal code of the United States at this point is with its long history. And there's even, I, I've heard the language of discovering the law as they go along, which sounds like they're making it up. But actually, it means that um, human experience presents new situations that are not covered by previous legal codes. And so based on what we already have, what we've already learned, then we have to create new laws to address that. And so like all of the upset lately about social media is that this this is really a novum. We don't really know even how to regulate or legislate about social media in a way that will actually achieve the desired ends. And so this leads me to the, the third and, and final point I want to make a, about structurally how a law works. So it starts out by being a recognizable and consistent pattern there is a gap between that pattern and reality. But then the third thing is that because it is a pattern, but because it is also not equal to reality, that means that the gap and the pattern can be exploited for ends totally at odds to the law itself. To use a very contemporary language, the law can always be hacked and gamed. Uh, it's 
you could even say that with the law of physics that by figuring out how to create an engine and an airplane, you could hack the law of gravity and get something up in the air and keep it up there. Obviously, you're still working within the greater laws of physics, but especially in the laws of of human culture, human jurisprudence, human interactions, human psychology, there are all sorts of ways the system can be gamed. And you can take advantage of the pattern and you can take advantage of what isn't known or what isn't covered by the law and twist it around and, and in the end, make the law exactly the opposite of what it intended to be. And I think this is where a lot of rage and injustice comes from. But I think it's important. The point I want to make is that this is endemic to all legal systems. It doesn't mean that a system is inherently unjust. It means that all legal systems can be hacked, gamed, and manipulated. Yeah, that's really insightful. I think you're right about that, too. Um, My personal experience with this was uh, before we went to Slovakia as missionaries uh, in 1993, we were so poor on our pastor's salary that we hardly had to worry about paying our income taxes. Of course, we filed every year, but it wasn't a big deal. Uh, And then the six years we lived abroad, we didn't pay U.S. income taxes. And then when we returned to the United States in 1999, all of a sudden our income had risen to a level where I think the first year I filed for taxes, I was just astonished at how difficult it was and how expensive it was. And so <laughs> at that time, I tuned into uh, one of these um, uh, programs you can buy to do taxes at home, TurboTax or something like oh, that. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And then I discovered a gazillion, a gazillion deductions and exemptions that I could claim that I was never even aware of. And of course, immediately I began planning for next year to um, take advantage of those um, of those loopholes or whatever they were. And finally, we got to the point where we had to hire a certified public accountant, accountant to do our taxes because we can't, it's just so complex, we can't do it ourselves. Now, I would say from myself, that we've tried to operate legally and within the spirit of the law. But the tax code is so complicated and so um, uh, um, uh, ambiguous in so many places. A lot of times, honestly, you're just taking a guess. It's a stab in the dark. And you hope that your income is small enough that the IRS spies will not notice and 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 call you in for a conversation boy it's tough being a wage slave dad isn't it (laughs) it's tough being a wage slave yep and i you know and i just i reflect on that how many people less scrupulous than i would be wholly willing to game the system using the tax law to their advantage in all sorts of corrupt and clever ways Yeah. And conversely, how many people are being gamed by the system because they don't know enough to be able to take advantage of all of these loopholes that are available to them? Yeah, it's it's an enormous problem. (laughs) It's really enormous. Well, I I love that because that's uh, a good secular example. And of course, we're going to be getting to religious examples shortly. But I just want to give a few more to kind of flesh out. So we cracked DNA. We understand how genomes work inside of cells, how they replicate, how the individual chromosomes 
function, which means that now we are capable of gaming the genetic system. So we know this in the most ugly form in in like eugenic experiments, but you also see them in, you know, still troubling, but less obviously horrifying forms. For instance, when you have genetically modified um, organisms that that are sold for food. So like you can splice out um, uh, the chromosome from a fish and put it into a tomato that makes it slightly more um, resistant and resilient when it travels from California to Wisconsin. So now all of a sudden, and that's because you understand the pattern, right? There's a consistent pattern to how DNA works. You can do that. So you are in some way still obeying the law of DNA because you still have to, I mean, it has to work, right? It has to actually turn into a tomato and fruit. On the other hand, you have pulled that tomato out of the larger law of evolution and the natural process of mutation and adaptation, and you've completely gamed the evolutionary system with God knows what intended consequences. This is why a lot of people are so terrified of GMOs. Um, I've also heard of like... um, breeding kinds of grains that are, let's say, resistant to certain kinds of um, parasites in poor areas, but they are not fertile. So you harvest your rice, but you can't save it to plant. You have to buy again every year. So you can game again this genetic system and offer people, hey, this rice is is a uh, blight resistant, but you have to buy it from the the big company every year. So that's a a way that you game the genetic system. Another one, this is, this is really prominent right now is um, how Facebook works. (laughs) So the, the apparent purpose of Facebook is to let lots of individual people appear as themselves and share photos of their family vacation and their cats and, you know, their victories and triumphs and so forth. And, you know, share and chat and reconnect with one another. But anyone who understands how Facebook works can also take advantage of its patterns and its algorithms. And so I just heard, this is so astonishing, I can hardly believe it. But it's estimated that in the year 2020, only 1% of the new Facebook accounts created were were created by actual human individuals. The other 99% were bots, fake accounts. And so wow. you, you may recall there. there's all this um, conspiracy talk about, about the Russians somehow stealing or altering the outcome of a previous U.S. presidential election because of some shady dealing. But in fact, as I understand it, they didn't do anything shady. They just, they just understood how Facebook worked and they exploited it, sure, they exploited the the uh, obvious and apparent intention of Facebook, but it's not by hacking or doing anything illegal or wrong. They used its own pattern consistency in order to create an appearance of wide-scale agreement or sentiment or fear or whatever, and people just in good faith bought into it. So is that illegal? At this point, it doesn't even matter whether it, it's legal. It happened because there was a recognition of how the pattern worked. Yeah, how to use it to one's advantage uh, in a re- less than in a somewhat sinister way. Yeah, exactly. Right. 
And the final example I want to give is, uh, Dad, you recently retired from being a college professor, and I know that you think college is, ought to be about education. But college is about a lot more than education, including, you know, increasing your salary, possibly meeting a mate, signaling your importance and smartness to the world. So there is a lot at stake in getting into college. And it turns out the best way to get into a good college is to have an excellent SAT score with the result of a lot of parents and students and businesses put all their energy into SAT prep and cramming to get the highest possible score, even if it is at the cost of the mental health or genuine intellectual development of the young person in question. But that is how you game the college system to get ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I witnessed some of that, that's for sure. Yep. And it's not like you you, you can eliminate requirements for college. Uh, that's been tried. It just doesn't work. You actually need to make sure that the people who are getting into various schools are capable of doing the work there. So you, you can't not have some kind of standard. The point is that the standard can be manipulated and gamed in order to win an advantage. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Good. All good examples. Let's go on. What's what's religious about all this, Sarah? Okay, well, as it turns out, there is law in religion too. And it even seems like God has a great fondness for law since a great deal of the scripture is devoted to precisely that. But here again, I think it's really important to to make the right critique of the law and not settle for the wrong one. So I want to bring two examples in particular forward. So the first is, once again, I'm going to defend the Levitical system of sacrifice <laughs> against all of its culture despisers who uh, from, I mean, this is from the early church fathers onward, it's hardly a, a recent critique, is that, um, you know, sacrificing animals and cutting them up and the blood and the burning, it's all this carnal, unspiritual, lesser form of worship. And, it, you know, it was meant to be outmoded because it was so primitive. This is not the <laughs> the right way to think about what Levitical sacrificial practice was intended to be. Sacrifice is as old as humanity. It is very deep. We still do it all the time, less often with animals, but there is a profound human impulse to sacrifice, to recognize uh, the importance of giving up something costly to signal your devotion. And so Levitical worship was meant to be a way indeed of the people of Israel rightly giving something costly and valuable to God first before they gave it to themselves, to not worshiping their own belly or their own tribe, but to learn what it meant to adore the one God of Israel alone. So, so far as it goes, that is a system with integrity, but because it is a law-based system, it can be hacked like any other system. And that is precisely the critique that you get in the prophets. It's not that the the thing was never what God wanted or never what God commanded. It was that the people had gamed the sacrificial system and thought that they could use it as a way of avoiding the call to justice, when in fact it was supposed to be a way of forming them into people of justice. So you have the very um, famous um, lines from the prophet Amos where he says, yeah, this is in chapter five, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream." 
Okay, this is not an anti-Judaic <laughs> revulsive comment. This is by a Jewish prophet. And apparently the, the Lord is as displeased with the songs and the harps as he is with the sacrifices of both animals and grain offerings. So the point is not that those were ever illegitimate forms of worship, but that the form of worship that was offered to the people of Israel was being exploited as a way of avoiding righteousness and justice. Well, sure. And you can think about that, Sarah, with the second and third commandments. Uh, Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath. Uh, Those are commandments uh, uh, to sacrifice uh, 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 time, to observe the Sabbath. And they are a commandment uh, to honor the name of God uh, and not dishonor it by your use of it. Right, and uh, those are commandments; those are laws, and yet they can also be gamed. Uh, you can play the game of saying, "Well, I will never pronounce the divine name of God, and if I never pronounce it, therefore I can never misuse it." That's right, game. Right. That that's gaming the system, and uh, the Sabbath day. Heaven knows how many ways uh, that commandment has been gamed. Uh, to turn the Sabbath into a day of uh, superior righteousness over against all those uh, uh, ne'er-do-wells who can't get themselves out of bed on in time and get their bodies to church and and just erect an entire hierarchy of the pious and the impious uh, uh, in our in our heads and and think that this is uh, honoring the Sabbath when it's in fact despising the creatures whom the Lord wants to rest from their labors once a week. Uh, So, you know, we can go on and on about that. But um, you're right, religion can, because religion in the Ten Commandments for Christians and Jews, because religion expresses itself in law too, religion too is vulnerable to being hacked or gamed, as you were saying. Right. On the flip side, though, and this is the the next point I I want to start developing, is that the solution of therefore just dismissing the laws out of religion altogether doesn't solve the problem. So, you know, you and I both know the kind of pastor who makes a point of swearing a lot to prove that they're too cool for school and that they don't need to abide by the second commandments, or the sort of person who um, is utterly disregarding of the summons to Christian worship um, because, you know, that Sabbath law that's so outmoded, you know, Jesus was against that. You know, I, I, I can experience God on the golf course. So dismissing the law is also a way of gaming the system. And it's it's trying to, I would say, there, it's maybe something more like gaming God's amiable nature or a disposition to forgive. So that also is a problem. Right. Getting rid mm-hmm. of laws does not solve the problem of, of hacking the system. Uh, we'll return to that. Yes, you're going. I think you're going to point out to us that you don't really escape from law. You just replace one law with another law. But that will reserve that, right? Yeah. Well, actually, we, we can get on to that right now with my, my second example. This is within the New Testament. So uh, in Mark, which we understand to uh, almost certainly be the first recorded gospel, 
Um, he reports Jesus teaching, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That's from Mark 10 verses 11 and 12. There is no out in this system. Now, the of course, the context here is about the question about Moses allowing a certificate of divorce. And Jesus said, yes, it's because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning, he made them male and female, and they are to leave their parents and cleave to one another and become one flesh. So what Jesus is saying is basically Moses let you hack the system because of your hardness of heart. But what the, Very good. Yeah. Right. But the, the system is there in order to honor the original creative intention of God in marriage. And therefore, Mark's Jesus is very, very strict and legal. He could say there's no out here. You simply cannot divorce and marry another without committing adultery, which is unacceptable. However, then you get to Matthew, written probably not very long after Mark, based on Mark, but I don't think there's that great of a time gap. And he has Jesus say, uh, again, in the same context of divorce and the original intention, uh, in chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Matthew's Jesus offers an out that Mark's Jesus does not, which is that if your spouse has been unfaithful to you, then you can legitimately pursue divorce as an option. Now, why is this? Of course, it's impossible to reconstruct the exact circumstances, but it seems to me that humans being human and sinners being sinners, it did not take very long for the early Christian community to realize that a serial adulterer could hack Jesus' stringent teaching and take advantage of his poor wife and continually cheat on her but refuse to grant her a divorce because you can't get divorced. That's what Jesus said. And the recognition that that was so profoundly in violation, actually, of the original intention of marriage that actually, in this case, it was better to allow an out for divorce. And I think now many of us would say that there are other circumstances, for instance, um, rampant physical abuse. Well, it doesn't even have to be rampant. <laughs> physical abuse against a spouse or probably um, an addiction that the addict is unwilling or incapable of um, of seeking treatment for and simply subjecting the spouse to the, the constant torment of the person's downward spiral. We can imagine cases like that where, again, the original intention of the law is so profoundly violated that it is better to allow the divorce than to insist that the marriage continue on a technicality. That's, you know, that's very interesting because what you're describing with this example from Mark and Matthew is the uh, beginnings of case law reflection uh, within early Christianity, or, or sometimes what Lutherans uh, disdainfully describe as casuistry, uh, the discussion of cases and the legal reasoning that goes into uh, why this case corresponds to the law's intention, but this other case does not correspond to the law's intention. And as you said earlier, in the process of considering new cases, unanticipated cases, one is actually discovering law, implicit law that has never been articulated before in the process. Uh, and I think that, that that's, that's kind of important, isn't it? Because it means that law is never 
a, a static uh, fixed body of doctrine uh, that simply sits there uh, uh, uncontaminated by experience, but is constantly developing in a living dialogue with human experience. Right. And it's also in a constant dialogue with human hacking. <laughs> and this is right. why we get, so, we get so frustrated at laws. And, and this, I think, is, is probably the deepest problem of, of policy. <laughs> People love to fight about policy. But it's because, because of this gap between law and reality that you never really know what you're unleashing on the world, even when you're rightly responding to a new case that has arisen and a new situation that you have to legislate. And then all of a sudden, you've legislated as best you can, and all these things start happening that you didn't mean to happen. And then this right. is just, the, the, like you said, it's the nature of the beast. You can't get out of that. So, for instance, you know, it, it's a well-known fact that strict divorce law has been particularly harmful for women, and religious figures have exhorted women to stay with abusive and adulterous husbands because that's what Jesus would want them to do. Uh, so there has, was a, a move in the 20th century in the U.S., for example, especially in the later half, to alter divorce laws to make it easier and easier for people to exit. And that finally culminates in, in the no-fault divorce, which means that either party can walk away for, for any reason. You don't have to bring cause like adultery or abuse or something like that. You can just say this is over. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, that should have been a good thing. It should have opened up possibilities for women especially to exit abusive marriage. But if you look at what has actually happened to family life and the flourishing of men, women, and children over the past 60 years, it's hard to avoid the feeling that you um, you got rid of one demon and invited seven more to take its place. And so you see uh, <laughs> yeah. absolutely catastrophically low marriage rate. We're not even talking divorce. Like marriage rate among lower classes has absolutely bottomed out. It has resulted in a tremendous increase in poverty for women uh, who are tend to be the heads of single parent households. It's terrible for children. It's not good for men, even if they uh, uh, economically seem to be doing better. And so this, this sort of attempt at a, I would say, like a moving in a more antinomian direction for marriage in recognition of the real problem of hacking strict marriage law in order to exploit a spouse has produced all these catastrophes of its own. And again, what, I, I'm, what I'm arguing for is not any particular policy, but the recognition that it's, it's both the pattern and the gap between reality and law that creates these ongoing spiraling problems. Very good. Yes, good. A persuasive analysis. So what you have is a functional lawlessness that becomes its own kind of law. It makes me think of the crisis in American cities right now. It's virtually a reversion to the law of the jungle, uh, the defund the p police movement, uh, which was inspired by necessary reforms in policing in the United States. Uh, as, uh, you know, obviously in the course of the last year uh, created such a backlash among police officers who are no longer willing uh, to intervene or risk themselves uh, in stopping or preventing crime because they're uh, afraid of being um, uh, prosecuted or, or, or stigmatized in certain ways as racist, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not, again, advocating like you any particular policy. I'm just pointing out that this retraction, 
this retraction of uh, community policing that's taken place in the last year has not been has created this vacuum in which in many parts of urban America the law of the jungle has taken its place and you have urban gangs for young men who have no other prospects in life no other opportunities for advancement no other places for status now uh, saying well you know what's up what's for me is to belong to a criminal gang to make some money to have a good time and to go out heroically in a gunfight it's like a return to the wild wild west and what's really noticeable is in those uh, gang communities, they have a very strict internal legal code. <laughs> there yeah, is yes. absolute discipline. And, you know, it's because you can't not have it. Uh, you know, I, I, or to, to give another example of how devastating this apparent lawlessness is, you know, there was a time when young unmarried people were forbidden to have sex under any circumstances. As far as I can tell now, the law of the jungle out there is you are forbidden to refuse to have sex. You have have to be sexually active. You do not have the option to say, no, I, I am opting for chastity at this moment. The, 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 the pressure and the just assumption that, of course, you give it up is universal. And it doesn't, I, I, I've read some stuff on this. This is not making people happy, actually. Uh, the, the, yeah. um, sorry, Dad, but your generation's idea that as long as people could just make love freely, they'd be happy. Uh, people are a lot more complicated than that. And apparently just free access <laughs> to sex doesn't make people happy. Astounding. Uh, it's not like having zero access makes them happy either. But it's... In, in fact, it's creating a new kind of uh, puritanism uh, to defend yourself in a sexually predatory environment where the law of the jungle prevails. Uh, people are having less sex, enjoying it less, and and basically looking for alternative <laughs> alternatives to uh, yeah. healthy marriages and happy sex lives. It's, it's uh, to my way of thinking, this is madness, but let's go on. It is, and it's, it's funding a very, very wealthy anti-harassment training industry. Hmm. <laughs> so, okay. So where does this all leave us? <laughs> this, this dire situation, the law, you can't live with it and you can't live without it. Well, okay, Amen. so first of all, we have to live by laws. There is no way not to, simply because the universe and humanity is so complex that in just to survive from babyhood into adulthood, you have to be provided with laws, even if they're heuristic laws of interpreting behavior constantly as shorthands. You cannot possibly, on an individual level, learn everything you need, you need to learn by direct experience. You probably wouldn't even survive into adulthood. And we cannot function without patterns. Uh, the whole, like, the human brain is this massive pattern processing thing. In fact, one of the reasons that science is developed is because we are so fast to see patterns that often we see patterns that aren't there. But that is how attuned our brains are. Science is supposed to pick out what's the true pattern and what's actually the noise. And the direct advantage of that is the more patterned something is, the less you have to devote specific attention to it. And then you can devote your attention to other things, whether it's a creative project or survival or exploration or play or dance or mating or all these different kind of things. So patterns are a real advantage to us because they help us, they, they save time for other kinds of things. And there's an infinite number of things to do. But because we have to have laws and because we love patterns, 
there are also the endemic problems, which is one, um, laws or patterns can lose their purpose over time as the complexity of the world unfolds and the situation no longer obtains. So old laws can actively lead us astray. I think most people in modern American culture are super comfortable with that, maybe too comfortable with it. But there's another thing, which is that we can take our laws and patterns so much for granted because they're operating so well that we cease to see what they're doing. And as a result, when we notice them, we can think they're not doing anything and we can discard them. This is actually called um, uh, shorthand Chesterton's fence for G.K. Chesterton, the English Catholic apologist. And he said, if you if you come upon a fence in the middle of nowhere, and you don't know what it's doing, don't tear it down until you figure out what it's doing. Don't assume that just because <laughs> it's a fence in the middle of nowhere, it doesn't have any purpose. It probably is doing something that you have not yet grasped. And I think a lot of the, the modern destructive tendency is to just tear down fences everywhere with no idea what they're doing and then suffering the consequences of that. Yes. I agree. And then finally, of course, we can understand laws and patterns so well that we begin to perceive the gaps, the weaknesses, the flaws in them, and we can exploit them for our own advantage. So I guess what, what this all brings me to is the recognition that any law-based system, even to work, has to be engaged with honorably. So actually, the law in itself does not contain obedience to the law or the right expression of the law. There is something else that you have to bring to the law to deal with it honorably and to demand that it deals honorably with you. And if either side, the legislating side or the legislated side, defects from honorable behavior, then of course the whole system is going to crumble. And I think a lot of the... Um, hysterical anger that we hear expressed nowadays towards, for instance, the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all of our founding documents is directed towards the ways in which that system has been hacked. But then the assumption is made, therefore, the system itself is fatally and horribly and evilly wrong, and therefore it has to be taken down. But I think this is exactly the wrong place to critique. Actually, looking at the whole span of human history, we have a really outstanding constitution that functions very well as a legal system, but like any legal system, it has to be dealt with honorably, it has to deal out honorably, and options to exploit or game or hack the system have to be recognized and stopped. And that's where the problem lies. Uh, of course, any legal system is going to have gaps in it, but it's not like you can just toss out the U.S. Constitution and write an unhackable constitution in its place. Even totalitarian systems have never succeeded in doing that. You know, that's very interesting. It, I have a couple of reflections on what you just said. To be engaged with the law honorably, now, it seems to me you're making at least a gesture in the direction of virtue ethics, uh, that the law can be used virtuously only by virtuous people, yet it's the law itself is not capable of, uh, of providing that virtue, uh, that goodwill that is presupposed in an honorable uh, uh, obedience to the law. So that would be one reflection for you. Are you gesturing towards a virtue ethic? Uh, let, let me answer that quickly. Yes, to a certain extent, except that I have seen virtue ethics gamed so much too, I'm not entirely sold on that as a solution. 
well, I, I don't want to play games with, with theories of virtue or something like that. But to engage honorably, it certainly seems to me that you're talking about the person, the subject who obeys the law. And you're talking about qualities uh, of that person uh, that are not uh, uh, derived from the law itself, but are uh, something that is given to or, or comes from the person in, in his or her engagement with the law. So that, 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 that's one thought. I would only say that, you know, it still begs the question of where the virtues derive from and how they're formed in a person. And they're always going to be formed in legal systems. So maybe something more like a feedback loop. But again, I, I wouldn't say that I'm endorsing any any like virtue ethic, particularly because, like I have said in real life, I have seen virtue ethicists and fans gaming that system, too. But that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so, but, but, but that, fine. but that, Sarah, that leads me to the second uh, response I want to make to what you said: that um, legal systems always, at least tacitly, presuppose some kind of moral purpose or some sort of covenantal relationship. Uh, we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union preamble to the United States Constitution, or as Lincoln need, needed to argue against Douglas uh, in the uh, leading up to 1860 election, uh, the, de the, the credo of the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created and equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a moral purpose uh, that uh, Lincoln argued defined the people who came together after the revolution to form a more per perfect union. So a moral purpose and a covenantal relationship are always at least tacitly presupposed in any kind of uh, legal order. And my third comment, I think when Paul the Apostle is attacking what he calls the law of works, what he's talking is about a legalism that uh, suspends or ignores the covenantal uh, order and the moral purpose of the Lord who has given these commandments to his people. The law of works is an abstraction from that moral purpose and covenantal relationship, which reduces it to nothing but procedural justice, a system of merit based on the principle that uh, the worker is worthy of his higher uh, reward for, for one's uh, due punishment for one's failure, things like that. Yes and yes to points two and three. And this actually leads to, finally, we're getting to our really Lutheran point here. This is why the law does not and cannot justify. It is not within the law's domain of competence to justify because there is always a gap between the commands and the devotion of the heart. And that's exactly what Paul is zeroing in on. You have, and Jesus too, you have the appearance of righteousness, but not actually the substance of it. Religious practitioners, just like any other practitioners of any legal legal system can can appear to be on the right side without actually 
loving God above all things and loving the neighbor as oneself. And I mean, th- th- this, I think, is really Luther's critique of merit-based systems. And again, it's, it's a, such a misreading of Luther to think that he is in any way an antinomian at the amount of time he spent writing about the commandments and how a Christian ought to obey them. But always it is an outward function of faith, not a way of getting right with God in the first place. Because if there's any way in which we first have to get right with God by our own doing, then we're going to hack the system of merit and righteousness. So I think that's why it's it's right to say that actually with Luther, you can only even begin to keep the law in the true sense, in that moral sense, not in the procedural sense, after you have been made right with God, because that is the only way actually to have this, what I've been calling an honorable relationship with the law, which recognizes its true intention, its true function, its desire to protect and enhance the flourishing of God's good gift of creation. That is the law's purpose. And until you are right with the creator of the creation, you cannot honorably engage with the law that's meant to protect both of those relationships that you have. Excellent. Yeah. And that's, of course, the classical tension between the letter and the spirit. You can superficially follow the the letters of the law and miss the author of the law's intention, the spirit of the law. So the letter of the law must always uh, uh, be interpreted or understood in the light of the spirit, which is the author's intention. And this also, you know, it, it strikes me, Sarah, as you speak, that the opposite of the honorable engagement with the law that you're talking about, which would be based on justification by grace through faith, right, would be the hypocrisy that uh, Jesus is attacking in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is a hypocrisy that's based on superficial human observance of behavior, ambiguous human behavior, that it sorts into piles of, uh, of uh, uh, do-gooders and evildoers and, and so forth and so on, but it never judges the heart. And so pious hypocrisy can hide behind this external performance of the works of the law and inwardly claim merit before God for this external conformity to the law. But Jesus is constantly saying, whoa, 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 you're not fooling God. Your heavenly father knows in secret and sees in secret. He sees what's motivating you. Of course, that, that's inexorably a theological point, isn't it? Right. You know, you, you shared with me an article you wrote a while back on antinomianism as a Lutheran heresy, and, and you contrasted it with Bonhoeffer's idea of of uh, ethical responsibility before God and neighbor. And that reminds me of his writing about lying. <laughs> and so Kant uh, asserts an absolute um, uh, forbidding of any law under any circumstance, even to the point that if you were hiding a potential victim and the murderer came to you and said, where is my victim? You would have to speak truthfully to the murderer and thereby betray your friend and guarantee his death because you could not under any circumstances lie. And, you know, this is this is exactly what made Bonhoeffer so outraged is that you could clear your own name and refuse to be guilty, but 
hand your friend over to death. But I think that's exactly the point is that the murderer is hacking your truth system. And instead of recognizing your truth system is being hacked and I do not owe anything to, to a murderer who's hacking both the sanctity of life and the sanctity of truth, I just want to be in the procedural clear. Um, and I think that that is just a perfect example of of how having the right relationship to God and an honorable relationship to the law actually lets us navigate in unprecedented situations for which there is actually no procedural basis whatsoever. Yeah, that's really great. Uh, And Bonhoeffer's uh, ethical responsibility there uh, means that one must be willing to be, uh, procedurally speaking, willing to be a sinner, a violator, in order to be, uh, in order to live righteously or honorably with respect to the law, and I think that here we have another uh, um, uh, insight of Lutheran theology that we have to distinguish between the law in human hands and the law in the hands of the Holy Spirit. The law in human hands, at its best works politically to constrain violence and uh, regulate society in a rough kind of justice. At its best. At its worst, it's vulnerable to all these hacks and gamings that we've discussed today. That's the law in human hands. Um, And of course, then finally, in human hands, we can use the law for self-justification and for uh, pouring contempt on our neighbors whom we think have not deserved the righteousness we have awarded to ourselves. That's the law in human hands. What happens when the law is taken out of human hands and put in the hands of the Holy Spirit? Then I think John 16, the Holy Spirit comes to prove the to prove the world wrong concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit comes as the prosecuting attorney who uses the law, which humans use ultimately for self-justification, the Holy Spirit reasserts the holiness of God and the holy use of the law to reveal even the pious person's sinfulness, to expose us, to expose us in our utter need need of that justifying word of grace that depends in no wise upon our own behavior or performance. So, I would say here, the the issue this leaves us with, Sarah, is how do we know or recognize law as God's law? And I think that's the distinction I'm trying to get at here. For all the all the uh, human use of the law in the various ways I've talked about, uh, how do we recognize when the law is functioning, working as the holy law of the holy God at the hands of the Holy Spirit? Well, I we're not going to solve that one today, <laughs> but I think that that I think that is finally actually the interesting question to ask. In, in a way, all of this is preamble to the real discussion about about how we know, and I suppose the whole domain of of Christian ethics is that. 
Um, though, of course, like anything else, ethics can be hacked. But actually, what I, the way I want to wrap this one up, Dad, is actually in, in some ways this whole discussion has been a setup for me to ask you a question that I have been puzzling over and have not arrived at a satisfactory answer in my own mind, so I'm hoping you'll answer it for me. Which is that... I have defined all along law as a consistent and recognizable and reliable pattern, which nevertheless, because of its consistency and, and its pattern, can be hacked. But then I got to thinking how often I hear um, good Christians, and I mean that in, in, in the real sense, not in a sarcastic sense, talking about the gospel exactly as if it functioned like a law, which is that, for instance, I'm, we're just going to speak for Lutherans here. We love to speak of God's sure and certain promises, utterly reliable. We talk about God's faithful and steadfast character. Um, in Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We say that baptism does actually save. We say that Christ is truly present in the Lord's Supper. We say that the words of absolution really do take away the guilt and punishment of sin. All these things we say are unaltering, reliable patterns of God and his actions in the world. When I put it that way, it sounds like the gospel is just another law. It's a better law, to use very unfortunate language of uh, early Christian Jewish struggles. But there obviously is a way to hack and game that system, too. So I was just thinking, well, this must be why anti-sacramental type Christians tend to be so down on infant baptism, because they basically just see it as, as a gaming of the system. What? Oh, you got splashed and you're a baby and now you're saved forever? That's ridiculous. Though if they tend to support apply other laws, like the law of an experience of being born again or being baptized in the spirit, and then that becomes the new system that also can equally well be gamed, as in like Charles Finney and the Anxious Bench, right? And then I was thinking about historic theologians who have tried to prevent I'm, I'm guess this, this is my interpretation. They're trying to prevent God and the gospel from being hacked by clever religious people by asserting God's absolute freedom. Like I think William of Ockham is the medieval one who was like, put God's absolute freedom so high that in a way God was just purely arbitrary. Um, and that like the goodness of God was only because God said it was so, not because there was anything inherently good about it. Because if good was just good, then good was higher than God or, or something to that effect. And I can't help but think that even Calvin's teaching on double predestination was a way of trying to prevent the hacking of, of God's grace, you know, and saying, no, this is God's absolute decision. You, you, cannot, you cannot game God. But that also, that seems every bit as a treacherous an approach to the gospel as making it yet another law that can be hacked and gamed and finally lead you in an antinomian direction to say, well, God will forgive me. That's his job. <laughs> so how do we how do we talk about the the fidelity of the gospel and the certainty of the promise without it becoming another hackable legal system? Wow, that's a really super, super duper question, and we could probably spend a whole podcast trying to answer that, but I have some quick thoughts I'll give to you. Yes, uh, the, 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 the Lutheran heresy of cheap grace is the idea that God is love, that God's job is to forgive, that grace is automatic, uh, that God is not a problem. 
and so forth and so on. That is a... It's asserting patterns, not asserting God somehow. It's an asserting a pattern and not asserting God. That's why Karl Barth's idea of God is the f- is free in his love and loves in his freedom, that freedom and love are two qualities, uh, uh, properties of God that modify each other dialectically. And you can neither collapse one into the other, I think, is so important here, because it means that God, the real God, not an idea of God, but the real God whom we encounter in the crucified but risen Jesus Christ, present to us to speak his joyful exchange in word and sacrament, the real God and the encounter with the real God is not in our control. But it works faith, ubi et quando deo visum est, where and when it pleases God. That's a better Lutheran uh, version of Calvin's double predestination. It's rather saying that here on the earth, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the grace of God effective for us in the encounter with Jesus Christ. So could I say that maybe that it's not baptism that saves, but the baptism of this particular person and body at this point in history is the Holy Spirit's work of saving that person. And the difference between the first being an abstraction and the second being an a historical event with an origin point that extends forward in time is is the difference we're talking about here. Yeah, it's something along those lines, and so so for the sacramental reality. But here, too, sacraments do not work ex opere operato. They don't work mechanically or automatically. They work precisely as the Spirit uses the bread and the wine, the bath of water, uh, to make the crucified but risen Jesus Christ a real event for us such that our trust is generated in that, uh, our trust which comes together with repentance and so forth. So I think the fundamental problem here is that we have turned the grace of God into an idea. And an idea is always something that we can manipulate and, and dispose over. But God is not an idea. And theological ideas are ancillaries. They are servants. They are not masters. They are witnesses. They point to the reality of God. They do not replace the reality of God, which is and only can be met. uh, God can only be met in the freedom of his love uh, to which we uh, are subject and not uh, masters. So that, that would be the fundamental way I would like to answer your basic question. And I want to make a comment, too, about um, um, the um, absolute arbitrariness uh, problem that you uh, lifted up. You said um, the dilemma was something like this. Good was only good because God said so. But if good is good as such, then isn't good greater than God? I'm sure you know that you've just articulated what's called the Euthyphro problem from the little dialogue of Plato in which Socrates interrogates pious Euthyphro, who is so sure he knows what piety is. And, of course, Socrates just dissects him. It's it's a delicious little 
platonic dialogue. And um, it, it develops this very dilemma. Uh, uh, if good is only good because God says so, then uh, God, is, uh, God is arbitrary, and as, as is also the good. But if good is good as such, then this idea of good is greater than God. It's an impossible problem. It's a dilemma. That's exactly the point. Uh, but I think, I think the Christian answer to the Euthyphro problem is the atoning life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That would be what is so lacking in the proclamation of the mainline churches today, and that is what is so badly proclaimed in the enthusiastic proclamation of it among the evangelical and fundamentalist churches. Uh, God is good because God surpasses God in finding the way to be merciful to real, not imaginary enemies. And the reality of this is the Isaiah 53 death of Jesus Christ on the cross on behalf of us all by which a connection with us in the depths of our alienation and estrangement from God is established, which will never and can never be broken because nothing can separate us from such love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> of course, Jesus is the answer. But I think the specific answer is it's not the, the idea of Jesus or the idea of God's constancy or, or goodness or forgiveness, like you said, but that actually we are living in the middle still of the living project of the living Lord Jesus to reclaim sinners for himself. It's actually, it's not an idea because it's actually happening. It's history. It's your life and mine and all the people that we encounter. And so, you know, the, the idea ideas that we bring, like with any law, they're heuristic devices to help us interpret and, and function, but they're not the thing itself. The thing itself is the, the living work of, of the Lord, um, re recalling all the lost to himself. So you cannot solve the problem of gaming grace other than by preaching the event of grace, which is the atoning life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by which the Holy Spirit will create repentance and faith where and when it pleases God. And when the Spirit succeeds in that, the Spirit has created honorable persons who will use the law rightly. And I think we can trust that God knows how to deal with those who would try to game the gospel. We don't have to, we, we can warn against it, but we can, we don't have to worry that um, creative sinners will fu fundamentally take advantage of God. <laughs> God. God will continue to live and reign and have his gospel be set upon people in the right way. So, uh, Amen. Okay. Very good, sir. All right. Okay, that was great. Uh, next time on the show, our last regular episode of the season, we're going out with an apocalyptic bang covering the book of Revelation. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.